to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I am welcoming the amazing Jess O'Reilly. Jess has a PhD in human sexuality with a focus on teacher education. She is the author of five books, including The Ultimate Guide to Seduction and Foreplay with recent guest Marla Renee Stewart. She is the host of Sex with Dr. Jess podcast and appears weekly in international media and Forbes and The Doctor to Cosmo and Entertainment Tonight. She hosted Playboy TV's reality hit Swing and has facilitated couples retreats in over 45 countries from Lebanon to Switzerland. Welcome, Dr. Jess. So happy to be here. So nice to be chatting with you again. It was years ago that we last connected and it was a karaoke night, wasn't it? Oh, it was, it was a blast. It was like a sex therapist karaoke night and you are not only amazing at what you do, but also just an amazing person to hang out with. And I hope that you come back for more karaoke ASAP. We need it. What I like about LA is that you've got really good tacos at any time of night. We don't have, I'm here in Toronto and it is <laughs> hard to get good truck. tacos. Exactly. We've got taco trucks, but they're, they're kitschy. They're not like the real thing. And they're definitely not open at 3am. You've got to go to some I don't know, special taco truck park to make it happen. So yeah, I'm going to come see you in LA very soon. Okay, so I was missing karaoke so much over the pandemic that I signed up for this ridiculous app called um, Smule. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I'm going to force you to join this app with me. I haven't been on it in a while, but during COVID, it like saved my life. So it's a, literally an app where you can karaoke. They haven't sponsored the podcast, but Smule, feel free to sponsor me. Um, they... It's an app where you can karaoke with random strangers from around the world. And um, I did that. I recorded over a thousand songs. Oh my gosh, I need to do this. That's so much fun. I don't have a good voice or anything, but I love to karaoke. No, it's the performance. Nobody, I mean, there are some good singers on there, but um, honestly, I even met some like digital, like faraway lovers in Australia that we just had like sexy time sexting with. So um, yeah, would recommend Smule. Okay, love it, love it. Smule, get on this podcast sponsorship. <laughs> Sexologists, yeah, <laughs> sex therapists, sex educators, we like to karaoke. I can't help you with the street tacos, but Smule, I can I can recommend. All over it, all over it. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna send you my discography so you know you can uh, see my amazing, my amazing work. Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch, I'm gonna listen. Okay. So you have traveled the world talking about sex, obviously. Is there one thing you have found that like unites us all when it comes to sex or like what people need? I think one thing is that we all feel self-conscious. We all don't know how yes. to measure ourselves and know if it's okay. And so I, I think because sex is one of the very, very few things that fully happens behind closed doors, sort of like pooping. You don't know what other people's poop looks like. You don't know what, <laughs> like, you don't know how many squares of toilet paper they use. You don't know how the, how many times they wipe. Do they look at it when they're done? And so if you do any of those things, you're curious, does anybody else do this? Is anyone else? 
feeling concerned about the same, you know, uh, I guess, hiccups or hangups. Do they use a squatty potty? Do they use tools? Exactly. And so same thing with sex. We just, we don't know what's going on in anybody else's bedroom. So we feel a little self-conscious. And I, I mean, anybody working in the field knows that our first job is to reassure people that like kind of whatever you're into, whatever you're thinking, whatever your desires may be. Yeah, you're all right. You're all right. So that's a big thing. Uh, And then the second thing I would say is probably tied to more kind of cultural imperialism and a tendency to look in on other cultures, especially for for white folks and Western folks. Uh, There are a lot of assumptions made about faraway lands or cultures that they are not a part of, or even cultures where they've dated someone and, you know, they've dated two, like I'll just say, because I'm Chinese Jamaican, you've dated two Chinese Jamaican people and they were into XYZ, therefore all Chinese Jamaican people are into XYZ. And so there are a lot of assumptions we make. And I guess that leads to the solution. <laughs> the first step in solution is to just be more open and be more open to talking really like on a one-on-one basis. So, uh, you know, not assuming that because one partner enjoyed something that another will, not assuming that because I enjoyed something two years ago that I want the same thing on a Tuesday of, of 2022. So just more voluminous, meaningful, vulnerable conversation. And it's pretty revolutionary. You won't even need us. <laughs> well, I, I definitely haven't taught in as many countries as you have, but I would say that's what I see in my private practice. Uh, or I, I would just say shame. So shame, no matter like where someone was raised or what they've experienced, it's shame about, yeah, like you said, am I normal, my desires, what am I interested in? Am I doing it as good as other people are? Is there someone out there who has figured it out and has the key? (laughs) Um, Like I look at, you know, I think people look at us and they're probably like, they figured it out. They have the key. (laughs) Right. No, we don't. We've got like a whole (laughs) keychain of keys and we're just trying to shove them in there. (laughs) Yeah. And we can show you what the keys are and what they do. And sometimes we use them and sometimes we don't. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes the door you open is a door for you. And sometimes it's not, you know, in private, practice I imagine you've seen some really serious shifts over the last couple of years like oh yeah any trends that because I'm I'm not in practice right I'm more working with groups yeah uh, I would definitely you mean with COVID Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I think it, it goes one way or the other but I have seen and across the board all of my colleagues have just seen an increase in clients yes so so many therapists myself included are full Mm-hmm. Um, meaning we're not taking on new clients and I like hate being full, but luckily I have some great folks to like refer to on my list or resources that people can use in the meantime. But I think this time has required people to like be with themselves a lot. And I think especially in a capitalistic centric place like the U S where I'm at, um, this might not be true everywhere, but I think people have not learned how to just be, <laughs> to just be with themselves. And so I think they kind of ran out of things unless they downloaded Smule. They like ran out of things to like be, uh, yeah, to be able to distract them with. Mm -hmm. And so they were forced to just like be with themselves and look at like what is working for me, what's not working for me. And I think that was fucking painful and like eye-opening in a, sometimes in a good way, but also in a not great way for a lot of folks. And then on top of that, all of our nervous systems have just been fucked. And so having this high amount of like cortisol level in a global pandemic for this long, we were not, our bodies were not meant to be in that fight or flight state for so long. And so I think I've just seen people being really with their cup overflowing in not a good way Mm. and nervous systems just totally fried, which is going to affect the way people show up for empathy, for social engagement, for connecting with others. And then you have people kind of spinning out 
uh, just being with themselves and looking at what they're doing and then only looking at social media for how folks are doing and comparing themselves. And I think it's just erupted in a lot of dissatisfaction, a lot of uh, comparing and just depression, anxiety, um, and just figuring out like what type of connection am I really looking for? Absolutely. Yeah. All of that. And I think about how quickly people turn to like anger or how quickly we're able to feel down. You're having a good day and the smallest thing can set you off and really totally. pull you down. Or you're in a, you know, a half decent mood and somebody does something tiny to you and you just erupt. And of course that takes a toll, not just on relationships, but in the bedroom. Uh, I, I, interestingly, what I've seen on, on my side is that so many of the couples I work with, because it's a kind of specific subset, is that uh, one partner usually travels and is super busy for work, and the other partner usually works but is more at home and managing the household. And so mm-hmm. now that that partner who's been out and about is at home, there's a greater appreciation for what the partner who's holding down the fort actually does to keep things kind of moving and keep things harmonious and keep things safe. And so Mm -hmm. I've seen couples who are feeling so much happier together because they've made the time. Now, as we transition, uh, certainly the pandemic is not over, but as we transition back to uh, days and schedules and routines that are more like they were pre-pandemic, It's interesting because these benefits that couples have recognized, hey, being home more, spending more time, appreciating what what one another are doing, they're breaking those habits that they were forced Uh, into. And uh, I I think that I'm probably guilty of this myself. So I think we all need just like this minute to, because we're all so excited to go back, right? I'm excited to go back on the road and work. I'm excited to get back to events. We're all excited if, you know, if it's within your within your safety zone. I know it's not within everybody's comfort zone yet. Right. But for those of us who are, you know, my work is on the road and I do need to work, (laughs) Uh, not just financially, but psychologically. Like it it was really hard to shift to a different type of work for me. And I'm seeing that with my clients as well. So I'm hoping that there are some holdovers from this shift that, uh, you know, for example, spending more time with yourself. Okay, maybe you don't want to spend 24-7. Maybe you don't want to be overly introspective or overly reflective uh, Mm. and trying to figure out everything every single feeling in your body, but hopefully some of that remains as we transition back to what they keep calling the new normal. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's a good question because this is something that I too struggle with. I think a lot of my clients assume that I, that I don't because of the work that I do, or maybe that you don't because of the work that you do. But when we go out there and we teach folks resources, or we go out and we find resources for ourselves, why is it that we have such a hard time continuing to like integrate it when we know that it works and it helps like continuing to maintain that effort? Like, what would you say, even though this is your field and your expertise, like, what do you think is still hardest for you to maintain in your partnership? Um, so I would say that I develop a lot of tools, really specific tools for couples. And there are too many, like it's voluminous. If you do the sexual Mm. values exercise and the relationship exercise and the time exercise and the core erotic feeling and all of these different things, it's just too much to keep up with. And so I would say that I struggle to implement any of them (laughs) because I feel so (laughs) overwhelmed and I'm kind of inundated. 
Yes. And so I, I'm in a fortunate position where my partner is really good at saying, hey, I heard you talk about this specific tool. Let's try it together. And so it feels very low pressure to me because it's just one thing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, learning on your own, you bring that into your practice. And I'll always say to clients, especially because I do what's called like brief interventions, right? I'm going in for the evening. I'm going in for the weekend. And then right. I'm moving on to another group. And I'll always tell the groups, you know, this is a lot of information. You just need to pick one thing just one thing this week and then put one thing in your calendar for next month. Because if you try and do it all, like most people do when, when there's a presentation or a workshop and it's impactful, you, you're, you're kind of, you're drunk, you're high on all of the new information and all of the new tools and you think you're going to use them all. But what, what happens is you go home and as you said, it just feels kind of inundating, overwhelming. So that's my problem is kind of picking where to start. Um, and then the other thing I personally struggle with since, you know, is that I, I hate initiating sex, <laughs> mm. wrote a book on seduction, talk about initiating <laughs> and fully do not like doing it. Now, once I start doing it, I do like doing it. I just Are you more like responsive? Oh, we talked about this on the podcast, responsive versus spontaneous. So if you don't know what that is, go back, check that out. I am both responsive and spontaneous. It's more that I love the feeling of my partner coming to me mm, like and feeling so, their feeling their hunger yes and and i just did a podcast on two podcasts on rejection i absolutely struggle f- with the fear of rejection so i think that's the piece that we learn in our work is that it doesn't matter you can have all the knowledge you can have all the skills and you're still human and imperfect and i'm not hard on myself i'm not like oh i suck and i will push my comfort zone even just because i don't feel like yeah. initiating and i'd rather wait 10 minutes cuz they'll probably do it uh, i still push myself and just do it because of course it feels good once you kind of get over the hump or whatever psychological or personal barrier is holding you back. Yeah. I mean, there is something at least for me that is sexy about someone like really confidently initiating something, but I think that's hard for a lot of people. You know, it's usually like that, that look, or they like, I know my partner when we first started dating would like linger on the like make out for a while. And there was like this very particular way that he would do it that I was like, okay, you want to fuck, but like, you can't say you want to fuck. You're just like doing this move, but like not saying it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can like, I can picture all the different moves, like all those <laughs> indicators. Yeah. And we all need yeah. practice with it. We all, and I think also you get bored with the same old thing. Like I don't want to use mm-hmm. the same move every single time, which is why we do yeah. the work we do, which is to always, you know, keep coming up with new ideas. And sometimes you don't have to like every idea. You don't have to, you know, succeed. It doesn't have to be a 10 every single time. Sometimes mm-hmm. trying something and learning you don't like it can be just kind of as exciting and as meaningful. Yeah. I, I really like what you said about the picking one goal. I mean, I think in cognitive behavioral therapy, that would be called like a smart goal. So something that's like specific, manageable, attainable, uh, what is it? Realistic Realistic. and timed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I struggle with something similar. I think it's committing to the time. Like I do this kind of work all day and then whatever work you do, but especially in ours, I think we're like, talking about the stuff that we're maybe wanting to do. And so I get home at the end of the day and it's just like, I'm fucking tired. Um, and would it be much easier? And is it much easier to just get into our onesies, eat on the bed and like watch a Netflix show? Absolutely. <laughs> it's like so easy to fall into this pattern and this routine. It takes a lot of effort to, I think, committing to something that isn't in your usual routine. Absolutely. And that subject burnout is something that I don't think we 
talk about publicly as much as we talk about among ourselves. But when you talk about sex all day, when you're dealing with other people's emotional uh, baggage, when you are talking about relational problems all day and Mm -hmm. not personalizing them because you're in this professional headspace, uh, that can be really tiring. And at the end of the day, sometimes the last thing you want is to engage with something that feels like it could intersect with your work. Uh, I know with television shows, people are always telling me to watch these different shows that are kind of about sex. And I find that I, when I watch Netflix, it's to chill and kind of zone out. And so I actually don't want to watch shows that are about something that intersects with my job because then I'm going to be taking notes. I'm going to be thinking, oh, I could do this or I could learn that. And so there is a, you know, I think we have to give ourselves grace as people working in the field Mm -hmm. to not always be in the mood, to take a break, to set boundaries, um, and to also not feel like we have to have the hottest sex lives possible yes yeah I mean how do you decide what you want to share with your mass following of folks because I know it is it can be a fine line of like yes yeah, humans we want to know that we're not alone and that we're experiencing things and to hear that like Dr. Jess struggles with rejection could be so healing to some people of like wow you even struggle with that mm-hmm. like shit okay um how do you decide how much to share and how much not to share I went through the first probably 10 years of my career sharing very, very little, especially publicly. And then when my partner, Brandon, started co-hosting my podcast with me, that changed things because it really started to feel like a personal conversation. Uh, And I just feel really safe with him next to me. And there are many reasons for that that intersect with our, (laughs) our identities. And so the only place that I, I would say I share a lot is on the podcast. And even then, I share very little. Like, I'm sure to a lot of people, it sounds like a lot because we talk about different sexual experiences. (laughs) Because we actually talk about sex, yeah. Yeah, but I, you know, I don't talk about my my family relationships. I don't talk about some close friendships. Uh, Things that take up a lot of space in my mind, I do keep those kind of for myself and my therapist (laughs) as Mm. opposed to putting it all out there. And it's interesting, there's this contradiction because we are professionals, but we're also brands and we're in business and Mm. public facing brands. When you're a personality, the big, you know, the buzzword is authenticity and vulnerability and, and the truth curated authenticity. Exactly. It's, and I, I'll tell you, I am not, I don't want to say I'm inauthentic, but you're only getting a piece of me. Uh, like, uh, you know, I might allude to, or, or refer to the fact that I, I struggle with people pleasing, uh, and a few of my struggles, but I'm not going to get into the root of it. I'm not going to get into all the ways in which it manifests itself. I'm Mm. not going to get into the underlying hot thoughts because I'm still working on those things. And so what you've made me realize is perhaps I share the things that I don't really feel there's a lot of work left to do on and the things Mm, that are like, here's what it looks like on the other side. Exactly. As opposed to like, here's my personal therapy session. Right. Because if I'm still working through it, that's just going to be, not only am I thinking about, listen, when you're podcasting, you're thinking about your own sound, your own technology. You're thinking about whether you've mentioned your sponsors. You're thinking about whether the content is relevant to people. You're thinking about the comfort of your guests. You're thinking about all of these things to also be working through my own traumas would just, would just, I think be impossible. And actually my relationship with Brandon is is easy. Like I'm not saying that we haven't put a a ton of effort into it over the years, but it's a really happy, healthy, fulfilling, amazing relationship. And I think that's why 
couples goals for sure. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's couples goals for us. It is like, I, it might be someone else's yeah. nightmare. <laughs> the type of relationship we have. I mean, definitely being with me would be, I think a huge stress for so many people, but I wonder if that's why I'm so comfortable sharing with him and talking about our relationship on the podcast because it's yeah. in a really good place. And it truthfully, we've been together, we're coming up on 21 years. We go way, way back and things are good. Like we haven't, I'm not saying we haven't had rough days, but we've never really had long, rough patches. And I know that maybe that can be triggering for some people to hear. Uh, and I want to be clear that if you've had long, rough patches, that doesn't mean that your relationship is any less or yeah. any less fulfilling. Uh, and so you know, everybody has their own journey. And maybe in a few years, we will have a longer rough patch. Uh, you know, who knows? But to answer your question, and I never thought about this framing before, I think when I'm already super comfortable with something, I'll open up about it. But if I'm still <laughs> struggling with it, I'm probably going to keep it to myself. And then mm -hmm. my therapist and my friend, like the people who are my support yeah. system. Yeah, I think it's, I would say similar for me, but it's coming, I think from a few different places. One for me is like, in private practice, obviously, I'm only self-disclosing if I think it's something that is beneficial to the client. And so if I think it's going to be beneficial for them to not feel alone, to normalize something, uh, to share you know, what it does look like at the end of a process of something, then I might share it and I will always do like a check-in, like, oh, are you open to a self-disclosure of mine and not just like unload it onto them? And yeah, I agree. I think if it's something that's currently in progress, it's not my time for therapy. So I have to be really cautious that it is... Uh, therapeutically inclined uh, for what the client is working on. So I would say I share definitely a little more on the podcast, a little more in educational things. But even then, as you said, we're kind of a, a brand. And so I think the other part of it for me is, I guess it's just boundaries, right? Like I'm like, I don't owe you every part of me. I don't really know any of you. And I think when we talk about sex, um, a lot of people think that maybe we owe everything to them because it's such an open topic. Uh, that's why I think folks say, don't tell people what you do on an airplane. Cause then they're going to like get a free therapy coaching session. You know? <laughs> oh, people yes. just start, yeah. People start opening up, but I think it's, to me, it seems similar to like a lot of my sex worker clients is like not wanting to share everything. They're like, this is a part of my persona. This is a part of me. Uh, but the rest I decide where and who gets that based on where I want to share it. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I I'm thinking about when you create content like a podcast, which is, I believe, free. Yeah. Your podcast is free and accessible, right? Yeah. Like most podcasts are. Mine is. Yeah, there is uh, this this pressure. You want to give people, you want to help people, obviously. Like we're not doing this. Yeah. Just, <laughs> we're not doing it for the money. <laughs> like, I don't know. I have lots of different things in my business and the podcast isn't <laughs> the thing that I do. You do it because you really believe you're creating content that might be helpful. Not every episode, not every yeah. piece of a conversation is going to be super relevant to every single person. But there's this pressure and sometimes there is a bit of entitlement that people that you ought mm. to meet everybody's needs. And that's something I have to work on understanding that if you have yeah. a very small listenership, sure, maybe you can know exactly who your demographic is. But as a brand grows, and you've got tens of thousands or more people engaging with you, uh, there can be this pressure that people say, well, you should be doing this, or I, I want to learn more of this. And we want to oblige. Make everyone happy. Oh, oh that's such a struggle, <laughs> isn't it? Right? Mm -hmm. and, and people sometimes do because of the field we're in, because it is so highly personal. 
um, yeah. they do get to know us. That's that's absolutely true. Like I, I and I feel a connection certainly with with the listeners, and that's why the podcast, unlike Instagram or unlike you know a yeah. big trade show, uh, I feel a lot more comfortable opening up because I feel there is this personal connection. But also, mm-hmm. there's not. It, it is. It we don't hear from them, right? And so yeah. it's sort of like with celebrities, for example, we feel we know them because we see so much of them and we feel this attachment to them. But what we have to remember is they don't know who we are. Mm-hmm. And and it's not that they don't want to. It's not just, you know, their celebrity status that separates them. It's that they may not feel safe with us because they don't know anything about us. And so it's this, you know, singular direction relationship that we have to be aware of. Yeah. Oh my God. Like how many times have I, I mean, maybe even with you, how many times have I been on like Instagram and like following what I think is someone's life. And then I see them and I haven't seen them in a while. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I know everything you've been up to. And like, I feel like we've, we're totally caught up and it's like, I literally haven't like seen you in years. <laughs> you, like, <laughs> you know, one thing is I, I get to know people online and we chat and then sometimes yeah. I can't even remember if we've met in person at a conference or something because you oh, feel so, so connected to each other. That's a little yeah. different though. When you, like, cause there are some like listeners and followers that I have gotten to know and yeah. we do end up connected. We do end up like meeting at an event or becoming friends. Uh, but that's yeah. a little bit different than just, you know, 20,000 people listening to what, to one episode. Yeah. Okay. So in the spirit of some self-disclosure and then also support for others, let's transition into some support for others a little <laughs> bit. Um, Okay. So on your podcast recently, you talked about, and and you mentioned this when we were discussing earlier, something called core erotic feelings. Um, What is this? Yes. So this is my favorite topic to talk about the emotional erotic connection. So we talk about core erotic feelings and elevated erotic feelings. And I think that this is such an important self-reflection and something that's really essential to share with partners to better understand sex. So your core erotic feeling is the feeling that you need in order to get in the mood for sex. So if I don't feel safe, I can't have sex. If I don't feel sexy, I can't have sex. If I don't feel challenged, I can't have sex. And everybody's erotic feeling is different. Of course, there are some common ones. Many of us want to feel loved and safe. Many of us want to feel wanted. Uh, oftentimes, your erotic feeling is rooted in safety and validation. That is not mm-hmm. the case for everyone, but that is oftentimes yeah. the case. Uh, some people will say, well, I don't really care how I feel. If I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm glad, I'm angry, I'm grieving. I'm, I'm always in the mood for sex. And that that's okay too. Uh, I would theorize that perhaps your core erotic feeling is really taken care of. Like maybe you need to feel confident and you're quite a confident person. And so you pretty much always feel like you could have sex. Uh, maybe you need to feel loved. And in the context of your sexual relationship or relationships, you feel very loved. And that feeling is so taken care of that you don't even really have to take note of it. But Mm -hmm. for people who struggle to get in the mood, for people who struggle to seduce their partner, for people who feel their partner doesn't know how to come on to them, I find this is a really valuable theoretical approach. Rather than worrying about how you touch them or what you say to them or, you know, what you're wearing, how do you want me to make you feel, right? How can I help? you to feel sexual or feel some erotic feelings. Now, of course, it's not a partner's job 
to take care of your, your core erotic feeling. So you have to kind of figure out what your core erotic feeling is. And we have some reflection questions in the book. And also we go into it in depth on a recent podcast. You know, how do you want to feel before, during, and after sex? When you think of like a sexual experience that felt really comfortable for you, what were you feeling in that moment? We don't have a quiz. It's not like, you know, something that's more reductive, like the love languages. It's quite nuanced and individual. And then once you figure out what your core erotic feeling is, you can look at ways to cultivate more of it in your life, right? I'll often ask people to make a fire and ice list of like, what are all the things that can potentially make you feel this way? What are all the things, interactions, people, scenarios, language, visuals, anything that can take away? And, And then once you've figured out your core erotic feeling, that's when you move on to the fun stuff. So the core erotic feeling gets you in the mood to potentially have sex. It doesn't mean every time you feel it that you're in the mood. It just means that in its absence, sex is off the table. Yeah, then, I call it like the the simmering, right? Like you're simmering hot water uh, to a boil, right? Oh, I so love that. Putting in the effort to help it to simmer. What part do you, I, I love that you were saying it's like our responsibility to know our core erotic feeling and then to also put work towards like indulging in that and not just like letting it be like a cold car sitting in the garage and waiting for someone to come and be like, let's start this bitch. And you're like, wow, I haven't even been thinking about sex for weeks. Uh, So like, what do you think is the balance between what's like our responsibility and then what we should be able to maybe, I don't know if I want to say like rely on our partner for, but like count on our partner to collaborate with us on. If I had to pick a balance, I don't, I'm always going to say 80-20, I think, or 90-20. 80-20 hours? Yes, it's absolutely oh. our responsibility. Uh, you mean we're responsible for our own feelings. Now, if it's a, a feeling of safety or validation, I don't think your partner should ever be really uh, detracting from that. Or if they are, they need to kind of address that. But mm-hmm. let's say I need to feel sexy, Okay. And so in the context of, you know, a lot of popular culture advice, they'll say like, oh, you know, especially in heterosexual relationships, they'll say, oh, tell her she's beautiful, compliment her, make sure the compliments are really specific. Like, oh, I love your kneecaps. They're so pretty. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and sure, that can be helpful to, you know, help with feeling sexy or feeling confident. But if I'm spending all day consuming images that make, that, you know, make that I respond to by feeling, you know, bad about myself. If I'm speaking disparagingly about my body, if I'm not treating my body in a way that makes it feel good, whatever that means to you, then their words are going to fall flat. Exactly. It can't be one person's responsibility to, and then we also have to look at the structural components of this. Who is allowed to feel beautiful or sexy or whatever it is you want to feel? Who is told like, you know, does your skin color, is it represented in ways that are sexy? Uh, Is your body type, is your age, is your gender identity, is your look, all of these different, or even your, your social status, your economic status, all of these things come into play. And so we also have to look at, you know, the ways in which, which structural elements and oppression preclude our feeling, a feeling that we actually desire. And so that is something that, you know, you sure you can talk to a partner about that. You can talk, you can reflect on your own, you can talk to friends. And for many people, it can, I think, really help to talk to, to a therapist. Yeah. I think the struggle that I see the most when I think about core erotic feelings is, and this is so common, a mismatch in core erotic feelings, right? And like what this brings up in terms of having the sex that each person wants. And so the main one that I would see is we've got one person whose core erotic feeling is I want to feel relaxed before I am open to having sex. You know, I want to feel like the dishes are done. 
I have left work over there and now I'm coming into this space and it like can take a while to really get to that relaxed space. And then I find that that person who has the sort of relaxed core erotic feeling often partners with somebody who turns to sex to get relaxed. So they, I don't want to say they like to feel stressed to have sex, but like stress makes them want to connect. And I see this like so much as these opposing things. Any tips for opposing core erotic feelings. Yeah. So that dynamic is super common. In fact, it sort of describes my relationship with my partner. So Brandon needs to feel relaxed and I, I turn to it as a source of relaxation. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's absolutely surmountable. I think that we don't have to be the same as our partners. I think number one, we have to understand one another, but also we have to take responsibility for ourselves. Cause I do remember kind of earlier in the relationship when he would be stressed out, I'd be trying to like help with his stress and calm him down. But come on. Yeah, you're short- like, how about a blowjob? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, that no. might have worked. I'm like, I'm not that generous. <laughs> uh, here's the love honey blow motion <laughs> toy. Uh, give yourself a hand. So, so I, I remember feeling pressure to help him feel relaxed. But what I really learned is that it's his job to do the things in life to make himself feel relaxed if he wants to want more sex. So I think we have to start there that not everybody wants to have sex and you don't have to find your core erotic feeling. And if you're not in the mood and you like lower desire than your partner is your baseline, you don't absolutely have to come up. But we both really enjoy sex and would like to make more time and energy for sex generally. And so he had to figure out, well, what is it that's required for me to relax? Like, do I need to turn my phone off earlier? Do I not need to take phone calls from certain people? Do I need to put an auto reply on my email? Cause a lot of his came from work. Yeah. Do I need more help? Like, especially with, with people in parental relationships that you're describing, oftentimes it's the partner who is tasked with caring for the children and caring more for the domestic mm-hmm. uh, responsibilities who wants to feel relaxed because they are in their workplace. Right. Yeah. Or when like you, you were, you were talking and not to like genderize it, but you were talking about couples you work with that you've got like the traveling one who's mm-hmm. like maybe missing them and traveling. And then they come home and then they're like, I'm ready for fucking. And yes. the partner at home is like doing the, you know, housework stuff and feeling like, uh, what? Right. Because that partner whose work is out of the home got to leave their work there. Whereas the partner who does more work in the home, even if they also work outside of the home, because so many of them do. They're still in their workspace. Exactly. And their board of directors is sleeping in the next room or scratching on the door when they're trying to go to the bathroom, right? They're equivalent of their board of directors or their boss or whoever it is you report to. So all of my clients um, either run a company or uh, own own a company. So they all generally report to board of directors. And like the kids Mm -hmm. for the partners at home who in most cases are in hetero relationships, the wives... The kids are sleeping in the next room. So I I think that when there's a mismatch, first, we have to understand. Second, we have to take responsibility for our own feelings. And then we need to get specific about how our partners can help us. So like, let's say, for example, I, my core erotic feeling was, let's just say I need to feel like sexy. Okay. And I can turn to Brandon and say, baby, make me feel sexy. If you make me feel sexy, I'm going to want it. And Brandon's idea of making me feel sexy might be like a smack on the butt. Whereas my idea is like, I want you to leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My idea might be something totally different where I want him to look at me up and down like a piece of meat and tell me that he has his eyes fixated on every curve of my body until the day he dies. He is never, you know, I may want that kind of verbose. Yeah, that's that's, that's the like (laughs) the Jamaican side of me. Uh, And so 
if I say I want to feel this way, I also have to be specific about how my partner can make me feel that way. And then they have to be open to it. So Brandon might say like, Ooh, that is not easy for me. I am Canadian. We do not express ourselves so effusively, but I'm willing to push my comfort zone and I'm going to like go practice or I'm going to read some dirty talk books, or I'm going to watch a show that you really like and learn to talk like that character a little bit. Uh, you have to be willing to put in the work. And then similarly, I have to be accepting, like there's all these layers to it. There isn't like a one, two, three, but I need to know that if he's stressed out, he's not going to be in the mood and I'm not always going to be able to de-stress him. And that's okay. So I can take care of myself or I can say, Hey, I know you're not in the mood for this, but can you loan me a hand with that? Or can you menu just picking something else off the menu? (laughs) Exactly. So, and the other thing I'll say is having matching core erotic feelings isn't actually necessarily, it isn't always a good thing. So if both of you want to feel desired, well, that's when you run into the impasse where each of each wants the other to do all the initiating. Hmm. So having the same one isn't important. I think what's important is uh, being willing to reflect on it yourself, communicate it to your partner, be specific about your needs and push your comfort zones with, with an open mind and know that you don't have to be perfect, right? Not everything has to be yeah. a seduction scene from a movie. And then I know you've already talked about this, but this is really about responsive desire, helping somebody to feel a certain way so that they can get potentially aroused and get in the mood. We need to accept that that is no less valuable, no less exciting, no less pleasurable than spontaneous desire. I see a lot of disconnect between folks who say that they're willing, but aren't putting in the work that matches how willing they say they are. Yeah. Do you think, do you think a lot of the shame holds them back? Like I know that, and fear, right? I don't think it's necessarily a selfishness or an unwillingness. There's usually like a deeper blockage, like, well, I want to come on to my partner that way, but I feel self-conscious or I feel like, you know, good girls shouldn't, or I feel like that feels emasculating or whatever it is. Like, and again, this is where all of these structural notions around sociocultural norms really hold us all back and we actually have to do the work around that which is not fair because some you know if if you're forced to the margins folks who have you know historically been excluded from being represented uh have to do more work than others and that also comes into play in relationships especially if you're in like a mixed race dynamic or any sort of discordant dynamic where one person's experience is significantly different in terms of structural oppression. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, that, uh, first of all, I think all these things are surmountable if people Mm -hmm. are willing to put in the work. And I think that if you're not willing to do the work, uh, you have to call yourself out and maybe dig a little deeper into why. And that's where talking to someone like you, I think is really helpful because it doesn't mean they need to be with you for 50 sessions and lie on your couch and talk about everything. They might just say like, you know what, I'm stuck on this specific thing. Uh, I want to figure out how to overcome it because I value this relationship and I want it to be as good as it can be. Yeah. I mean, I think this is such a common human thing, not just in relationships where we say we want something, but we're not quite ready to actually do the work, whether, whether that be like physical health, emotional health and wellness, um, a new exercise routine, like whatever it is. So I think there, there can be a lot of disconnect between people saying that they're willing, but having their behavior not actually match the level of willingness that they say. And I think it's for different things. I I can't recall the name of the author, but there's a new book that just came out that is titled something like there's no such thing as laziness or something. Do you know what book I'm talking about? I'll I'll put it in the, I'll put it in the show notes, but I agree with that. I don't love the word like 
lazy or something like that. Cause some, some people might just say, Oh, well, you're just lazy um, that you don't want to do this. I think usually there are laziness as a hidden barrier. Like you said, sometimes that could be, Oh, I don't know what to do. I don't have the tools. I didn't learn about sex stuff. Sometimes it's shame. Um, other times I think it's potential resentment towards a partner. Um, it might also be feelings of, well, they're the person who wants sex less. So they're the one with the problem. I shouldn't have to put in the work. Um, so I think it's a whole slew of things. And I agree with you. It, it is about maybe a willingness to go deeper, but yeah, sometimes it takes a while to actually match the insight and the willingness with the integration and the practice. Uh, absolutely. The nice thing though, with behavioral changes, you actually can do it now. Like if you haven't done something for 10 years, you can literally just try it now. It doesn't have to be this revolutionary thing where you change from one type of person to another type of person. If you've never initiated sex and your partner complains about it, you can go do it right now. You need to sit in your own discomfort, perhaps. You need to embrace that, make friends with rejection, which I believe is a life skill to make friends with a rejection. Yeah, and work on perfectionism stuff because I think a lot of people put stuff off because they're perfectionists, myself included. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and know that, again, sex doesn't have to be a 10 all the time. It can just be this thing you do and sometimes it's a one and like, you know, sometimes you eat a breakfast bar and sometimes you go to a big beautiful breakfast brunch buffet with mimosas and Mm -hmm. sometimes you just have to have that breakfast bar and it's better than nothing and i know some people (laughs) like breakfast bars my partner loves breakfast i I can't eat that stuff but but sometimes i have to i'm on the road and i have no choice yeah when do you think uh we should be aware that we're like eating breakfast bars too much I think that's really, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know what I mean? Like settling for like, oh, this is like fine, better than I'm not starving, but also like, uh, I know there's more, like, I know there's a beautiful buffet out there. I think that's really up to you to decide. I don't think everybody wants to explore everything when it comes to sex. So yeah, like maybe like your partner, they're like, oh, breakfast bars forever. Great. Yeah. This guy could eat this date breakfast bar every morning and be (laughs) just as happy. I know. I'm like, there's dates in it. Oh, I hate dates. I hate dried fruit. He's so cute though. (laughs) He like brings it on the road. We're in a nice hotel and I've ordered, um, you know, eggs Benedict and a fruit salad. And he's sitting there in the corner with his, I think they're called no BS bars. (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh my God. And so I I think we're using like sex as a metaphor. It's like someone who's like happy with just the like, yeah, let's fuck. It's it's fine. You know, whatever. Versus someone who's like, I really want to have like expansive tantric, multiple energetic orgasms and like really elevate our sex life. Well, maybe I'm doing this whole metaphor a disservice because if he really enjoys that breakfast bar, um, for him, the breakfast bar is actually at the other end of the spectrum. So I think I'm maybe being unfair for, to the breakfast bars. So if we go specifically to sex though, because some people- Being love, unfair to the breakfast bar. Yeah, no, like for him, he really, really loves it. So I want to give yeah. him that. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's important to kind of figure out your own sexual values. This is an exercise that I kind of start with, uh, with all, with all clients. And it's just kind of, uh, if you head to, to our, to our podcast, we actually go through the sexual values exercise, but you can do it right now. Just think about what does sex mean to you? How important is it to you? What are the physical elements of sex that you value? What are the relational elements of sex that you value? What are the emotional elements of sex? What are the practical elements? I think that's kind of a good place to start. And if you say, you know what? Sex isn't that important to me. It's like a one out of 10. 
that is perfectly fine. You'll want to communicate that to any partners that or potential partners, because if you, you know, want to be in a monogamous relationship with someone who says, well, sex is a 10 out of 10, right? Then we have to figure out, can we find middle ground? How do we negotiate and navigate that? Uh, But I think that it's, there's nothing better about like an energetic, long lasting tantric orgasm versus a quick get me off with a toy, you know, the womanizer toys will take you 30 seconds um, to get off. There's not, it's not that one is better than the other. One person might, uh, might personally find one of those better. But for Mm -hmm. other people, it's just kind of like squirter orgasms. Everyone wants to learn to squirt and every, you know, most people can learn how, but it doesn't mean that it's a fulfilling experience. Some people love it. And for some people, it just means more laundry. So I think you really need to be honest with yourself and give yourself space to know what you enjoy uh, and know what you value and to change and evolve over the course of time. Like you may, like maybe I have, you know, clients who have young kids and they are just happy to like slip into the bedroom for two minutes and get each other off. And it is an absolute thrill. And I'm guessing based on, you know, my experience with clients is that when their kids are 12 and 13 and they're out at like soccer or out with their friends, they're going to go back and enjoy taking more time with it. But that doesn't mean that one type of sex is inherently more fulfilling. It's really up to you to decide what works for you. Yeah, I think that's so tough because it's so hard to find someone that I know you talk a lot about discussing core values with people, whether that be the like sexual values or otherwise money, uh, I don't know, religion, things that are difficult to talk about. You, you do a lot with helping people talk about those hard things. And it's hard to find someone that aligns in all those categories, especially if you're committed to monogamy. Um, and so figuring out like, well, what are my deal breakers can feel really, really hard. Like, oh, maybe they line up in all these ways, but they're a one with the sexual uh, importance and I'm a 10, like, what do I do with that when everything else lines up? Well, I think we have to be open to many different ways of having relationships, number one. Uh, Number two, I think we need to be more flexible with our expectations, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can't have everything you want all the time from one person. So if this person can't can't give it to you, where are you going to get that fulfilled? Right. Like people will say, well, I want more affection and my partner doesn't like to be touched a lot. Okay, can you snuggle with a friend? Can you snuggle with your cat? Can you, uh, you know, go for a massage? It it cannot be we cannot become reliant on one person. Do some people find that? Absolutely. But I'm not sure that it's just a cultivation. Part of it is just chance. And, you know, as someone who has, uh, you know, is in this relationship that feels very happy and very fulfilling and very easy, I'm also aware that things can change over time. So I have to be prepared for changes. I, I'm glad. I met Brandon when I was 21 years old. I am glad that he is not the person, the same person that he was when he was 23. <laughs> People yeah. change. And sometimes that means that you're a sometimes better fit. Sometimes together, sometimes apart. Yeah. And if you change apart, then maybe there are still ways that you stay together and other ways where you, you know, find other fulfilling fulfillment. Like I talked to, I work with a lot of older couples kind of in their sixties and so many of them, especially the women, they don't want to travel with their husbands. They, you know, every, a lot of people are really into travel. They love mm-hmm. their husbands. They've got this great life and they love to travel with their friends more than with their husbands so be it, right? You don't, that's just one tiny example, but you don't have to do everything together. You don't have to share Mm -hmm. all the same interests. Like if you're really into motorcycles and your partner's really into floral arrangement, cool. You go to the motorcycle show, they go to their floral arrangement class and 
you come back together and you have more stuff to talk about. I'm not saying you can't show interest in your partner's interests, but you don't have to embrace them all. Yeah, totally. Oh, I like have so many other things that I wish we could talk about and we're like starting to run out of time. Um, I really love the sexual values questions that you put together. So for folks out there listening, there's a, I don't know when this app will come out, but there's some really uh, great posts that like list 11 questions um, on your Instagram that I would suggest people check out and obviously buy the, buy the book um, support Dr. Jess, but last random question that has nothing to do with anything we've talked about. Um, I saw a post that you had recently that says don't J-I-C-P, aka don't just in case P. Um, can we just talk about that for a second before we wrap up? <laughs> yes. So this comes from uh, pelvic floor therapy. And if anybody has access to a pelvic floor therapist, run. Go. Don't walk and see them. Yeah. They can be absolutely even if nothing's going on, they can teach you about your anatomy, about relaxing your pelvis, about if you're someone who should or shouldn't do kegels and how and when. So much of that. Because, you know, when I first started in this field, I remember learning everybody should do Kegels, do Kegels as much as you can, do them at stoplights, yeah, do them when you're pussy. Right, exactly. And now we know that they are contraindicated for many people. I'm what you call hypertonic. So I have tension. That does not mean I'm tighter, though. I think a lot of people think that means, oh, I, like you said, I have a tight pussy. No, no, it it's pain. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's dysfunction is what it is. It's like doing a bicep curl. And then just releasing and letting it drop, right? You have to actually make sure that you're engaging in both directions. So yeah, my pelvic floor physiotherapist uh, taught me about the jick peeing. I was just pulling up that post and I've always jick peed. I've always been like, oh, I'm going on a car ride. I better go pee just in case. And, but it can actually lead to bladder issues and um, it can affect your pelvic floor function, your sexual response, erections, orgasms, all of those things. So all of these elements are intertwined. That's definitely beyond my purview. So uh, I'm sure you've had pelvic floor therapists yes. on the podcast before. So folks go back and listen to those episodes. Yes, check out episode with Shireen. Uh, I'll put it in the podcast notes, but yeah. Also, if you're able to get yourself to a pelvic floor physical therapist, even if nothing's wrong, um, you know, hopefully you have an OBGYN that would be willing to give you a referral um, if you're working with insurance. Cause unfortunately a lot of insurance companies don't feel like this is um, valuable for everyone to have. It's, I, I mean, pelvic floor therapists can diagnose so many different things. Like I remember many years ago, I fell and I hit my tailbone and mm-hmm. it would not heal for over a year. And I have what we call a miracle body. Like I can get a cut and tomorrow it's healed, but this tailbone would not heal. So they can help with tailbone pain, with abdominal pain, with lower back pain. Yeah. Jaw tension. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because your jaw is connected to your pelvic floor through some fascial stuff. So people who tense their pelvic floor also usually tense their jaw. Oh my goodness, this explains a lot to me. So yes, go see a pelvic floor therapist, (laughs) like get your insurance to cover it or save a little bit of money. Even if you can't see them on an ongoing basis, go see if you can get an initial consult and one follow-up. And stop just in case peeing. <laughs> We're not no more jig peeing. No more jig peeing. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Dr. Jess. You are amazing. Um, how can folks follow what you're doing? Hire you for coming to their country? Um, yeah, get in touch. Listen to your podcast. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So everything sexwithdrjess.com and the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. And again, if you want to follow what I'm doing, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. You can listen to episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at slutsandscholars.com. And please don't forget to rate and review and check out those awesome advertiser discounts. Thank you so much.